So um, last week we talked about death. We kind of have been talking about soteriology, and uh, which is the doctrine of salvation, and then going into Christian living. And uh, part of Christian living is considering Christian dying. And so we talked about death last week, and then next week we will talk about resurrection. And so what is it that comes between death and resurrection? That's what we're talking uh, about uh, this morning. So what happens uh, after you die? And before you are resurrected, I know what some of you are thinking, zombies, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. We're not going to talk about zombies. Some of you are hoping and, uh, and stocking up and hoarding and that kind of stuff. But uh, I googled the question, what happens between death and resurrection, or what happens after you die? And, uh, and I found some really helpful stuff, and by that I mean sociologically helpful, uh, kind of a theological train wreck. And, uh, and so the top results... Uh, from the Googles were uh, uh, responses from Mormonism, Kabbalah, Hindu reincarnation, Scientology, and various uh, medical doctors, quote-unquote, expert opinions. So there's a lot of stuff out there that is really, really unhelpful unless uh, you want to make John Travolta or Tom Cruise or Madonna or something like that your uh, expert on all things afterlife. And, uh, and even among Christians, if, uh, if we're thinking about it, even among Christians, there is a lot of uh, degree of confusion and, uh, and discussion. And so what I want to do is I want to begin by kind of giving a few different ways that uh, some people think about what happens between uh, death and resurrection, and then we'll go into what the Bible actually says. So these are three de- deficient views, three incorrect views on what happens between death and resurrection. And then we'll get into what the Bible actually says about it. And so the first one is the idea that there is a second chance, that after you die, uh, that you have some sort of a second chance to come to Christ. So think of the, you remember the, the Regis Philbin show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And kind of his, uh, his uh, famous line after they give an answer was what? Is that your final answer? So that's, this is kind of the idea of there being a second chance, is that uh, you die and you go to heaven and God says, are you sure? Are you sure that you want to reject Jesus? And, uh, and then so this is your sort of final uh, opportunity. And, uh, and so that's what some people think. Some people think that there is this uh, second opportunity to come to faith. There are various reasons to reject this idea. Uh, first, nothing in the Bible suggests that there is some sort of second chance at salvation. In fact, as we're going to see, the Bible teaches clearly uh, otherwise. And so there's a few different reasons for rejecting this view. We'll go over quickly. First one, think about it theologically or even logically. There's no reason. Why would we believe that simply dying is going to make someone who is hardened and hates God all of a sudden love God? If anything, uh, I'm going to think, if I am a hardened sinner and I die in my sin, if anything, I am going to think, God, how dare you kill me? God, how dare you do this to me? So there's nothing to suggest that a hardened sinner is going to be softened simply by uh, death. So why would we think that simply because someone has died that they're therefore going to be more willing to accept Christ than, uh, than they were in this life? Second, we've talked about this before, the doctrine of election. Uh, is, uh, is sort of the idea that God uh, determines who and who will not believe, and He ordains not only that they would believe, but the means by which they would come to faith. And so there are none whom God is really hoping, God is really uh, has His fingers crossed and hoping that they'll believe, and they just happen to die first. God couldn't help it. He had all of this sort of great thing planned for them, and then they get hit by a bus or whatever it is, and they die, and God is uh, upset, and so He gives them a second chance. And there's also various passages that teach contrary to the idea. Hebrews 9.27, you have it in your notes. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Or you think of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. We won't go over that uh, for the sake of time, but there's a number of passages that would teach contrary to this idea of there being a second chance. So there is no second chance after you die. Instead, you have second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances and seventh chances and a hundredth chances before uh, you die. So now is the time to repent. That's the first view that some people hold that is deficient. A second view is called soul sleep. You have there uh, in your notes, psychopanicia. 
is the, uh, the technical uh, name for that, which literally just means soul sleep. And this is the view that people die and they simply exist in some sort of unconscious sleep-like state until the resurrection. And the, the primary reason that people think that is because the Bible would often use sleep as a metaphor for, uh, for death. So think of 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul talks about those who sleep and he uses that as death. Or the story of Lazarus when, uh, when Jesus says, uh, let's go, our friend has fallen asleep. And then all the people said, well, if he's fallen asleep, then surely he's going to wake up. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm talking about death. I'm speaking of sleep in a um, metaphorical fashion. So some people take that uh, language of Scripture and then stretch that to think that that's what happens after you die. You just kind of are in this dreamlike, um, uh, unconscious state of existence that is called uh, soul sleep. Now, certainly the Bible does describe uh, death as sleep, but it does so metaphorically. And we know when it comes to metaphors, when it comes to analogies, they're not like the thing that they are describing perfectly. No analogy describes something perfectly. And so there are aspects of death that are like sleep, but there's also aspects of death that are very unlike sleep. For example, go to a funeral and if the, uh, the, the, the person there who is quote-unquote sleeping begins to snore, how do you feel? That's weird, right? Why? Because we understand that although it might be like sleep in some sense, it's not like sleep in another sense. And so uh, you have a ton of scriptures that we'll get to as we get to what the Bible actually says that would uh, push against the idea that uh, there is this sort of soul sleep. By the way, I found uh, a writing by John Calvin when he was 25 years old, and he wrote a book called Psychopanicia, which is, again, this word for soul sleep. And uh, his subtitle, I love this, back in the day they used to have these great subtitles. His subtitle is, A Refutation of the Error Entertained by Some Unskillful Persons Who Ignorantly Imagine uh, That in the Interval Between Death and Judgment the Soul Sleeps. I love that. <laughs> error, unskillful, and, uh, and ignorantly. And uh, so, that's a second view that some people hold. A third view, probably the most famous throughout time, is uh, the view of purgatory. So, I want to spend a little time talking about purgatory, uh, in particular as a Roman Catholic doctrine. And so, I want to answer a few questions. What is it? When did it come about? Where is it taught? And then, what is the Protestant uh, or the, I would say, biblical response to the idea of purgatory? You have a quote there. On, uh, on purgatory from the Catholic Catechism, which says, All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo pur purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. So purgatory is this time or this place between heaven and hell where venial sins are purged from a believer. Could be a few hours, could be a few uh, millennia. And uh, so a few things to note about that. Uh, the first one is that this covers only venial sins. So in the Roman Catholic theology, you have a difference between venial sins and mortal sins. Venial sins would be things like little white lies and those kind of things. Mortal sins would be things like adultery and murder and blasphemy. And so purgatory really only applies to venial sins. And, uh, and so that's the, uh, the idea there. And you might be surprised to know that purgatory is something only for believers in Roman Catholic theology. Unbelievers do not go to purgatory. This is something that only believers experience. Unbelievers go straight to hell. Believers, on the other hand, go to purgatory, where they are purged of their sins so that they might be purified so that they can go to heaven. Another thing to note is that the length of time depends on how bad you are. So some saints, like if you are, uh, you know, Mary or something like that, you go straight to heaven. You don't have any sins. Uh, or uh, some saints or some martyrs or something like that, they go straight to heaven. Some might only spend a few minutes there. Some might spend uh, just thousands upon thousands of uh, years there. In some sense, doing good works and things like indulgences 
uh, and prayers for the dead. All of those things can help reduce your time there. But unfortunately, there's not some sort of Roman Catholic database that tells you uh, who has to go or for how long or exactly how prayers and indulgences work or anything like that. So that is what purgatory is. It's a, uh, a time or place between heaven and hell where venial sins are purged from a, uh, a believer. When did it come about? Well, it's hinted at in, uh, in church history since at least the 500s and, uh, and Pope Gregory, but it really entered into official church teaching as dogma in the Middle Ages. Where is it taught? There's some hints of it in the Apocrypha, in particular the, the second book of Maccabees in chapter 12. But one of the things you need to bear in mind, and you can go back and listen, we've taught on uh, distinctions between Roman Catholic and Protestant theology. One of the things to bear in mind is that it doesn't matter uh, for Roman Catholic theology where it's taught in the Bible. It doesn't matter if it's taught in the Bible, because according to Roman Catholic theology, there are two sources of authority. There is Scripture, and there's also the magisterium, which is the teaching authority of the church. So think of it like this. Think of it uh, if you have a kid and your kid comes and asks you if you can do something, if they can do something, and you say, I don't know, go ask your mom. And then they go and they ask their mom, do they then have to come back and ask for your permission in addition to that? Probably not. In that particular time, you haven't said no. You just said, I don't know, go ask your mom. So the moment that the mom says yes, the kid is free. They don't need permission from both parents. That's like uh, Roman Catholic theology. You don't need Scripture to teach on something if the magisterium, if the teaching authority of the church has already declared something to be, uh, to be dogma. And so uh, that is the case with, uh, with purgatory. Since the church has said that purgatory is taught, it doesn't matter if it appears in the Bible or not. That said, again, there are some hints of it in the Apocrypha. That would be if you push a Roman Catholic to prove uh, purgatory from Scripture, that is what they would uh, typically appeal to is uh, certain uh, works in the Apocrypha. So let's think about this from a uh, biblical uh, perspective. What does the Bible say as it relates to uh, purgatory? The problem is not only that it's not taught in Scripture, but that it actually contradicts what we see in Scripture. That's the bigger problem. The problem isn't just that we, there's not a text that we could point to that would explicitly say that there is a purgatory. The problem is there are a ton of texts that would actually point to the non-existence of purgatory, that purgatory would actually contradict what the Bible would say. So think about all of the passages that you see uh, in the New Testament about our current righteousness by virtue of being in Christ. Think about how we began Romans 8. What's the very first few words of Romans 8? There is therefore now no condemnation, not after purgatory, not some distant future event. There is therefore now no condemnation. We are already justified. That's a big difference between Roman Catholic and Protestant views of justification. In Roman Catholic theology, you are becoming justified. In Protestant theology, you are already declared to be justified. A second problem with purgatory is that it dilutes the power of the death of Christ, that His one sacrifice doesn't really fully atone for every and all sin for the elect. We must add to it. We have to add to the death of Christ. We have to suffer for our own sins. It doesn't matter that Christ has suffered for our sins. He's only suffered for some of our sins. We have to suffer for some of our sins as well, according to that. We must add to it. That's a theme, by the way, of Roman Catholic theology is this idea of insufficiency. Why do we need the teaching authority of the church? Because Scripture is not sufficient. Why do we need Mary as a mediatrix? Because Christ is not sufficient as the one mediator. Why do we need the ongoing sacrifice of Christ in the Mass? Because this one sacrifice isn't sufficient. Likewise with purgatory. And then a final reason to reject this view is that uh, there are a number of passages that, uh, that uh, speak about us immediately being in the presence of Christ, which is what we're talking about today with the intermediate state. So we can't say that we immediately enter into the bliss of Christ's presence, which is what we'll talk about uh, shortly and what the Bible would teach, and then turn around and say, on the other hand, we have to experience decades or centuries or millennia of purification of sin in order to enter into His presence. We can't say that it's both immediate and also that there is some sort of period that we must wait. Does that make sense? 
That's one of the biggest reasons. It's either immediate or it's not, and those are mutually exclusive. And so if we can prove from Scripture that there is this intermediate state, then that would, uh, by logical implication, disprove the idea of purgatory. So with all those things out of the way, let's talk about what the Scripture actually teaches as it relates to the intermediate state. Not a state like Oklahoma or Arkansas or something like that, but a state of being. That's what we're talking about here, a state of being. This is from Wayne Grudem. This is what he says about it, that death is a temporary cessation of bodily life and a separation of the soul from the body. We talked about that last week. Go back and listen. Tim did a good job of laying that out. Once a believer has died, though his or her physical body remains on the earth and is buried, at the moment of death, the soul or spirit of that believer goes immediately into the presence of God with rejoicing. That's the idea of the intermediate state from Scripture. And so, as we begin, I want to distinguish something for us. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about what happens uh, to unbelievers after they die. That is something that Scripture is not going to focus on with uh, nearly as much vigor Uh, because the Bible is not written for unbelievers. The Bible is written for the church. And so the Bible is going to give much more instruction about what happens to believers after they die. And that's what we're talking about in the intermediate state. As it relates to uh, unbelievers, the Bible would simply say that they go to judgment awaiting a final judgment. So there's a sense in which uh, the moment that an unbeliever dies, they are judged, but they are also awaiting this final judgment that will take place after the resurrection You can read about that a little bit in Revelation 20, that uh, there are all these uh, believers that are in death or Hades or hell, and they're awaiting this final judgment in uh, in the lake of fire. And uh, and so, but again, as it relates to the intermediate state, what we're talking about in particular is what happens to believers after they die and before they are uh, resurrected. So, believers experience this intermediate state of joyful waiting for a resurrection while spiritually in the presence of Christ. So I want to read a few texts, and then we're going to really spend uh, quite a bit of time in one of them in particular. So these are texts that would teach on this intermediate state. Philippians 1, 21 through 24, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. Listen to what he says here. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Or Luke 23, 43, the thief on the cross. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Or the vision of heaven in Revelation. Notice here the language that you have these conscious souls Unlike in the view of uh, soul sleep, these are conscious souls. These are people who are awake in a sense, and they're also in heaven. They're not in purgatory. So this would rule out uh, soul sleep and, uh, and purgatory. Revelation 6, 9 through 10, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then lastly, I think this is one of the, uh, the most powerful, Second uh, Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on uh, we may not be found naked. For while we were still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So what I want to do is I always want to flesh this passage out, no pun uh, intended there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're just going to walk through it uh, a little bit uh, at a time. And so look at verse 1 there. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 
So what is this tent that he's talking about here? Well, he's using it uh, as a metaphor to describe your earthly home, that is, your body. That's what he's talking about there. This tent is your body. By the way, John did that when describing Jesus. Uh, John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there is actually a verbal form of the word tabernacle, that He tabernacled uh, among us. And so think of the image of a tent. Some of you shudder at the image of a tent. Raise your hand if you like camping. Raise your hand if you despise camping. All right? Zach hates camping. I love camping, all right? That said, I wouldn't want to permanently live in a tent. One, one, tent. one time I was camping in uh, Big Bend National Park, and there was this freak cold front that came through, and it started sleeting. And so I was stuck in my tent with nowhere to go, nothing to do for 24 straight hours, and it was the worst. I love camping. I love tents, but I would not want to live in a tent forever. That's its own form of uh, purgatory. So tents are intended as these sort of temporary residences. That's sort of the idea of uh, a tent. And Paul says that is like your current body. It's a temporary residence. Notice I didn't say that bodies are temporary residences. I said your current body is a temporary residence. And we'll get to that in a second. But first, think of the imagery of tents from the Old Testament. Think about in the Old Testament that the tabernacle, the tabernacle where God dwelt was this tent-like structure in the wilderness. But it was eventually replaced by what? The temple, right? They eventually build an actual permanent building for God to, uh, to inhabit. So you have the, the tabernacle and then you have that. Or think of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is this annual feast where Jews were supposed to live in tents for seven days on the top of their houses as a reminder that they had to live in tents as they wandered through the wilderness. But the, again, the idea there is it's temporary. It's a season. As you're going through the wilderness, you're waiting for the promised land. And so that's kind of the imagery there. So uh, you're brought through the wilderness where you had to dwell in tents until you get to uh, the promised land. So in describing your current body as a tent, what Paul is saying, he's implying that your current body is temporary. Your current body is destructible. If you're in a tent and a bear wants to get to you, that tent is not going to prevent him in any sense, right? It's a temporary thing. It's not uh, ultimately going to be able to withstand the, uh, the effects of weather and, uh, and elements and all of those uh, sorts of things. That's like your current body. It's destructible, it's weathered, it's easily broken, all of that sort of thing. As Israel lived in tents while waiting for a promised land, Paul describes us as living in tents, our bodies, as we await a promised land. When Israel got to the promised land, they get rid of the tents. Do they just live outdoors? No, what do they do? They build cities, right? And that's sort of the imagery that we're supposed to get. That you trade a tent not just for this sort of disembodied existence, but you trade a tent for a building from God. Notice the language uh, that is uh, used uh, here, that uh, you have this building from God, that you have a permanent dwelling, a house not made uh, with, the, uh, with hands and those sorts of things. So the tent imagery, this temporary sort of impermanent uh, imagery, refers to the current body, but when it comes to the resurrection body, the language that's used is much more solid. There's much more of a foundation there, a building from God, a house not made with hands, a heavenly dwelling. In other words, you trade a tent not for another tent, but for something permanent. Let's look at verses 2 through 3. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, for if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. So we groan in this present body. That's the imagery there. In this current tent, in your current body, you groan. Some of you, that is very literal, right? Some of you literally groan. You wake up in the morning and you groan. You walk up and down the stairs and you groan. You get out of your car and you groan. For others of us, it might not be that literal, but for all of us, it's metaphorical, right? Cancer is a form of groaning. Colds are a form of groaning. Flu is a form of groaning, and on and on and on we could go. We're groaning, we're longing for something uh, different. We saw that in Romans 8, that creation itself is groaning as it's waiting for something. Do you remember in Romans 8 what it talked about? 
our adoption as sons, and then he goes on to qualify it as the redemption of our bodies. That's what we're groaning for. We're groaning for a day uh, when these current bodies, which are broken and weathered and all those sorts of things, will be replaced with another one. Even in the context of 2 Corinthians, that's what he's talking about. 2 Corinthians 4.16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Your outer self is wasting away. If you're in your 20s, you probably don't understand that yet. But if you're in your 40s, you begin to understand it. Maybe even more so in your 50s or 60s or 70s or whatever it, uh, it might be. And so notice that your groaning is this sort of evidence of longing. And what are you longing for? You're not longing to be naked. Your hope is not that you just sort of toss off this body and float around heaven as a sort of disembodied, immaterial, angel-like uh, being. No, your, your hope is that you would have another body. You're groaning not just to throw away your body, but to get a better body. When you die, we talked about this last week, that your spirit is separated from your body. That's one of the great tragedies of, uh, of death. And so in the resurrection, your hope is that those two things would be united again, that your, uh, your soul would have a home, so to speak. That's, uh, that's the idea that, that when you die, your spirit is separated from your body. So there's a sense in which you are naked. There's a sense in which you're unclothed. But to be naked, to be unclothed, isn't the ultimate goal. You ever had that dream where you go to school or work or church or whatever it might be and you're not wearing any clothes? How do you feel in that moment? Physically, you feel cold, I'm sure. But emotionally, spiritually, how do you feel? You feel unprepared. You feel like something's not right. You feel incomplete. In a sense, that's the intermediate state in heaven. There's something that's incomplete, something that hasn't happened yet that you're longing for, that you're waiting for, that you're yearning for, and that's the resurrected body. You're groaning, even in uh, the intermediate state to a certain d- degree, because you're waiting for your resurrected body. Look at verse 4, for while we are, in this, uh, while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Again, not that we would be unclothed, that's not the goal. Uh, this would be very re- revolutionary in light of, uh, of Greek Platonic thought, which said that the body is basically a prison for the soul. And so your ultimate goal is just to get out of prison, float around and be immaterial. That's the good stuff. The body is the bad stuff. That's not the goal. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. We want to be more physical, more material, more bodily, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Again, you're currently groaning but not that you might be unclothed, but further clothed, better clothed. Your body is, uh, is broken, it's worn out, it's weathered, it's subject to sickness and death, but you'll eventually get a new and better body. That's what he's saying. So that what is now mortal will be clothed with the immortal, the indestructible, the imperishable. Verse 5, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us His Spirit as a guarantee. So how do we know this is true? Because the Spirit is a guarantee. What does that word mean? For us, a guarantee might not mean that much. We've all known people who have made guarantees or promises to us and have uh, eventually broken that promise. But imagine what it's like to have a guarantee from a being who it is impossible for him to lie. It is impossible for God to be unfaithful. It is impossible for God to fault, to default on a loan or whatever it might be. That is profoundly different than our experience of a guarantee. That word guarantee literally implies something like a down payment, which again could be confusing for us because we've all probably experienced times where something, there was a down payment and someone never finished the deal. But that isn't how down payments work in the divine economy. I want to give you an example of that. Imagine that I want to buy something from you, whatever it is. You have some sort of a whatchamacallit or something, and I want that thing. And so I promise you a certain amount of money for it, but I don't have the cash on me. And imagine that in this particular scenario, there's no such thing as Venmo or any of these sorts of things. And so I have to give you cash, but I don't have any cash at the time. And so I have to go to an ATM. Some of you kids don't even know what an ATM is. But I have to go to an ATM. So I go to the ATM. And so I say, I'm going to go, but I'm going to come back. And I want this thing. And so as a down payment, I'm going to leave you this 
uh, personally signed copy of Tim Hollis's debut album, Tiny Temptations or something like that. <laughs> and so you have no idea how valuable this thing is to me or not, so you don't know, am I actually going to show back up? Am I actually going to show up and make this payment uh, that I have promised to you? Now, imagine a different scenario. Imagine that there is something that you have that I want, and so I say, I need to go to the ATM, and I leave my daughter Larkin with you in the short term. If you know how much I love my daughter, you know there is no chance in the world that I am not coming back. That's the imagery here of the Spirit as a down payment, that God has given His Spirit to us as a down payment to guarantee uh, this, uh, this promise. Verses 6 through 7, so we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And so this eschatology, this understanding of what is to come uh, after death, the understanding of resurrection, the understanding of God's promises, all of these eschatological promises, eschatology is just a study of end times, all of these eschatological promises should encourage us. They should empower us even in the present, that if death isn't the worst thing that can happen to us, uh, or, or if death is the worst thing that can happen to us, and death means that we're with Christ, then what have we to fear? It's like a bee with no stinger, a snake with no fangs. That's the imagery. Second Corinthians 5.8, yes, we are of good courage and would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This might uh, throw you for a loop, but that's what Paul says. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This is why Paul will say in Philippians that my desire is to depart and to be with Christ. He says that's far better. That's the language that he uses there. Death itself is not good. We talked about that last week. Death is an enemy. Death is always an enemy. Death is never good, but God uses things which are evil to accomplish good purposes, right? The death of Christ in and of itself is not a good thing. It's not a good thing for the only innocent person to ever live to be slaughtered but is it a good thing in regards to its result? Absolutely. It's the best thing that's ever happened in that sense. And so likewise, death itself is not good. It's an enemy, but the results of death abound for our glory. Here's what John Calvin said about this longing and hope. He says, Let us consider this settled, that no one has made progress in the school of Christ who does not joyfully await the day of death and final resurrection. That's pretty convicting. How many of us would actually honestly say that, that we joyfully await the day of death and resurrection? But that's what Paul says here. That's not just John Calvin speaking. That's what Paul said. It's better for me to, to depart. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I confess this is a struggle for me, thinking about this reality. I don't want Casey to go through the pains of widowhood. I want to see Larkin grow up and hopefully love Jesus, and I want to walk her down the aisle. I want to meet my unborn son. I want all of these sorts of things that I hope for. And so I'm saying this is a, a struggle. And I'm not saying if you have this struggle, that means you're not a believer. I'm saying if you have this struggle, there's something that's deficient in your understanding. There's something that's deficient in your affections. There's something that you don't understand about this life or death or the promises that God has made to us. And so this should push us into wrestling with our own hearts. If there is a sense in which we don't desire to depart and be with Christ, again, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying something's wrong. That's an evidence that you don't understand something fully, that I don't understand fully. So it would press us in humility uh, to cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. This is an area where I need my thinking transformed so that I would love and treasure God rightly. So don't give in to the discouragement if you find yourself unable to give a hearty amen to what Paul is saying here. But also don't dismiss this. Don't think that this is just, this is super Christians like Paul he wants this, but none of us regular Christians should have this sort of mindset. That's antithetical to what he is saying. You can't just ignore this. You should allow it to challenge you and to convict you. Not to condemn you, but to challenge and convict you. So what happens after we die? 
in light of all of these uh, passages, theologically, there's four eyes that I want you to know, four eyes. One, that there is this intermediate state. In other words, it's between two things, between this life and the next life. So we're talking about life after death, whereas resurrection has been uh, described as life after life after death. So the intermediate state, the state between two things. The second one is it's immediate. Again, there's no soul sleep. You die and you're immediately, you instantly enter into this state. We've already covered that. I won't go into detail here. The next one that it's impermanent. What I mean by that is just temporary, but temporary doesn't fit my eye illustration. The intermediate state is temporary. It comes to an end with the resurrection, judgment, and the new heavens and the new earth, which is our ultimate destination. So the intermediate state is kind of like a layover on a journey. It's not the ultimate destination. It's a layover. What's interesting is a lot of times we talk about heaven as being our final destination. It's not. Heaven is a layover. Our ultimate destination is the new earth. When heavens would come down to the earth and, uh, and we will dwell with Jesus and then the last thing to know about the intermediate state is, is it is immaterial. By the way, this is the only period of time that we will exist as this sort of disembodied spirits in heaven. Again, that a disembodied immaterial existence is temporary. It's not our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is resurrection and the new heavens and earth, that our time in heaven is temporary. Our ultimate destination is earth renewed as the new heaven comes down to the new earth. So heaven is this sort of layover on the way to recreation, on the way to the resurrection. I want to uh, show you an image that I had Tim put together. I originally asked him to draw me something, and, uh, and he thought this would be funnier, and I agree. And so it's the image of uh, what happens between life and uh, resurrection as illustrated by an orange. And so we'll put up the first one. That's you currently, right? You are like an orange, and uh, you have wrinkles, and you're worn out. That's the imagery that he uses there of a body, of a tent, right? It's worn out, it's weathered, it's worn. At some point, uh, if you are a, a kid, maybe that doesn't look like you as much, but as you get older, you turn more and more like that, and then, uh, then you die. That's your dead orange, all right? And, uh, and then after you die, there's this intermediate state where... There's this separation of body and soul. That's what that illustrates. And then eventually there is a resurrection. You are a new orange again, all your shining glory. All right. So if you are a humanist, if you are just approaching things simply from the, the sake of sort of a humanistic materialism, you just see two periods, right? You see uh, orange and then dead orange, and that's it. Right? That's the view of that. A lot of people kind of take, there's three stages. There is uh, life, and then there's death, and then there's this sort of disembodied experience. Or some people take three stages, that is life, death, and then sort of uh, soul sleep, and then you go to here. But the biblical view is going to hold all four uh, of these uh, together. That's the uh, image of what happens between uh, life and death and resurrection. So humanists would think of two. Uh, some, uh, some thinkers think of three or whatever it might be, but biblically you have to hold to uh, all four different uh, stages. So I want to give a couple of, uh, of final thoughts and, uh, and then we'll do some Q&A. Final thoughts as it relates to uh, the intermediate state. The first one being that many of the questions that you might naturally have as it relates to the intermediate state, are actually not answered anywhere in the Bible because we don't need to know them. A lot of the things, maybe even some of the questions that have been texted in while I've been teaching, maybe some of those questions are just things that the Bible is not going to answer because it, we don't need to know the answer. And so what will we be doing in the intermediate state? I don't know. I don't know what we'll be doing during that period of time. I know it's good and it's better than whatever we're doing now. That's all we need to know. Or one of the most common questions that we get is, will we recognize and spend time with family members? To hear uh, some people talk, that is sort of the joy of heaven. The joy of heaven isn't that you get to see Jesus. It's that you get to see your grandmother or your grandfather or your spouse or whatever it, uh, it might be. 
That's how some people talk about it. The joy of heaven has very little to do with Jesus. Some big family reunion. But if you really want to see what you make of Christ, ask yourself this question. This is from uh, uh, John Piper's God is the Gospel. Really good book. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever, should say, saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven? if Christ was not there? That's the question. That the good news of the gospel isn't just that you get out of hell. The good news of the gospel isn't just that you get to live forever. The good news of the gospel is that you get to live forever with God. And if you can think of heaven without that phrase, with God, then you fundamentally misunderstood the whole point and uh, hope and goal and joy of heaven. So will you have some sort of unique relationship with your deceased family? I have no clue, but I do know that it won't matter if we don't, so there's no reason to worry or to speculate about it. Or a second question, and this was actually asked last week in the Q&A, and, uh, and I said that we would get to it uh, today, so I'm going to go on a little bit of a, a rant. What about these uh, out-of-body, quote-unquote, uh, I was dead for 90 minutes or 7 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever it is, experiences like in, I'm going to read off a number of books, 98 Minutes in Heaven, Flight to Heaven, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, To Heaven and Back, Heaven is for Real, My Journey to Heaven, Proof of Heaven, or one of my favorites, 23 Minutes in Hell. He just <laughs> drew the short end of the stick there. This is a, a, a genre that you're probably familiar with in, uh, in quote-unquote Christian literature. You can find it at Mardell or Amazon or uh, church libraries across uh, the nation. It's a genre that's uh, been termed heaven tourism. Apparently heaven is a nice place to visit but not stay. So what do we make of uh, such accounts? And let me say this, I am really skeptical uh, I, I'm not saying that these people are necessarily lying. I think there are a number of different explanations that we could come to, uh, but I am really skeptical that uh, what they are telling here has anything to do with the actual uh, biblical view of heaven. Here's just a few reasons uh, why. I'm going to give you five reasons why I think that uh, you should be skeptical, highly skeptical of these as well. First reason, some of the people who have come out uh, and written these books have publicly repudiated uh, a guy named Alex Malarkey. That's actually his last name appropriately named, uh, but uh, he was the uh, author of A Boy Who Came, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. He later came out and confessed that his story was fabricated. His story was fictional, and he has since distanced himself. He actually wrote to the president of the publishing company and said, please remove my name from this because this was absolutely not the case. This was completely made up. So that's one of the reasons some of them have publicly repudiated Second, a lot of the details are really unbiblical, not just things that you don't see in the Bible, but things that actually contradict what you see in the Bible. For instance, in a lot of these, you get halos, you get wings, you basically become an angel, whereas biblically, these uh, angels and humans are two species that are not mixing. You don't become an angel at any point, or that Jesus has a rainbow-colored horse, like rainbow bride or something. Or that the Holy Spirit is blue. That's how you know that's the Holy Spirit, because He's blue. He's de depressed or something. Um, so that's another reason, that there are all of these unbiblical details in these books. Third, throughout the Bible, when people encounter the holy and the sacred, what's their response? They fall down in dread and fear and trembling even in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul has an out-of-body experience, he won't even refer to himself. He says, I know a man who 12 years ago was called up into heaven. He refuses to boast. Certainly, he's not going to write a book to make a bunch of money and put his name on it. And so you have uh, examples from, uh, from these books where there's this sort of casualness where people will climb up into Jesus' lap and he helps them with this homework or whatever it might be. Fourth, 
Speaking of Jesus, there's very little talk of Jesus. Imagine uh, this sort of view of heaven that's man-centered, where you're surrounded by all your favorite people, you're surrounded by all your favorite things. If you like football, there's football. If you like cats, there's cats, which right there, that proves this is not correct. There's no cats in heaven. Dogs, maybe. No cats. And the fifth reason, and I think this is a big one, is because it's the elevation of experience as an authority. Believe me when I talk about heaven because I've had this experience. Versus believe me when I talk about heaven because Jesus rose from the dead and the Bible says so. Why in the world would we be more apt to listen to a four-year-old boy than we would Paul or Peter or Jesus? It's absurd. So what do we learn from these books? Well, not much about the nature of heaven, the intermediate state, or anything like that. I think the main thing that we learn is there's really money to be made in Christian publishing and that many of us would much rather listen to a four-year-old boy talk about his experiences than read the Word of God. We're going to read a couple of quotes, and then I will uh, conclude, and we'll do some Q&A. This is a quote by David Platt, who went on a, a much longer rant on this subject, and he says, Make no mistake, there is money to be made in peddling fiction about the afterlife as nonfiction in the world of Christian publishing today. Over 20 million books, hundreds of millions of dollars in books and in movies on this sort of idea. And then John MacArthur pulls no punches. If you know John MacArthur, you know he typically doesn't. He says this, for anyone who truly believes the biblical record, it is impossible to resist the conclusion that these modern testimonies, with their relentless self-focus and the relatively scant attention they pay to the glory of God, are simply untrue. They are either figments of the human imagination that's why I said uh, they're not necessarily, quote-unquote, lying. They're either figments of the human imagination, dreams, hallucinations, false memories, fantasies, and in the worst case, deliberate lies, or else they are products of demonic deception. We know this with absolute certainty because Scripture has definitively says, said that people do not go to heaven and come back. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Proverbs 30. Answer, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, John 3. All the accounts of heaven in Scripture are visions, not journeys taken by dead people. And even visions of heaven are very, very rare in Scripture. You can count them all on one hand. All three biblical authors who saw heaven and described their visions give comparatively sparse details, but they agree perfectly. They don't agree with the Burpo Malarkey version of heaven. Burpo was another author. Both their intonation and the details they highlight are markedly different. The biblical authors are all fixated on God's glory, which defines heaven and illuminates everything there. They are overwhelmed, chagrined, petrified, and put to silence by the sheer majesty of God's holiness. Notably missing from the biblical accounts are the frivolous features and juvenile attractions that seem to dominate every account of heaven currently on the bestseller list. So let me give you this pastoral uh, encouragement. If you are intrigued by these books, let me just encourage you, don't read them. The only exception that I would possibly give would be if you have a friend or a family member or something like that and you're reading it in order to be critical, in order to be discerning, in order to help disciple them away from this sort of idea. It's hard enough for us as believers to evangelize the world with the foolishness of the cross, so don't add the folly of these sort of cheesy books and movies Okay, with that said, I'm going to have Zachary come up, and hopefully we have some questions. All right. Hey, everybody. Question the first. Why do all pastors hate cats? That's the first one that we have. Uh, I think because we're men of the word. Next. Uh, okay, so a few, uh, a few questions here. So first of all, you had mentioned how uh, we're not in our current body. Do you mean that we are not, we're some other person, or we have an entirely different body, or do you mean that we're just not in the body's current state? Could you give some clarification on uh, what you mean by that? Uh, we're not currently in our current body? What, what's the... 
When you say that we won't be in our current body, what do you mean specifically? Oh, yeah. I mean, this current body, which is corruptible and so forth. So there, I think there will be an, an aspect uh, of similarity and dissimilarity between our current body and the resurrected body. And so I think the best uh, illustration of that is in 1 Corinthians 15, and, uh, and Paul talks about there is, uh, there is similarity that exists between the two bodies. There's also a degree of dissimilarity, and the Bible is not going to necessarily uh, qualify all the areas of similarity and, uh, and dissimilarity. So you will, in a sense, have your own body that is resurrected, but it will also be different from your current body. And, uh, and the Bible doesn't go into detail uh, in regards to all of the different uh, distinctions uh, that exist. But uh, Christians throughout time have tried to kind of nail down those distinctions. They've gone so far as to say, you will definitely be 33. I guess the age that Jesus was or something like that. And, uh, and I think that's just uh, speculation. I would just rather say there's an element in which there will be continuity, and there's an element in which there will be discontinuity and simply leave it at that, unless you have more to... I mean, so I think what we're, we're, we're uh, something we need to keep in mind, when we are resurrected, we're still us, right? So if you die as, let's say, an Asian woman, you will not come back as a Hispanic man or something like that. It's still you getting out. It's not that your body just goes into the grave and God gives you an entirely different body in quantity. Rather, it's still you. Jesus gets out of the grave. You'll get out of the grave. Apparently, people can somewhat recognize you. But what's, what's changed is that you're like you would have been had mankind never sinned, that you are no longer subject to death. You're no longer subject to sin. So you're still you, but a redeemed you. So you saw Jeff's picture, which I thought was good. Notice that the orange at the end is still an orange. It's not an apple. It's not a lemon or something like that. So, uh, okay, I like this next one. A lot of questions about ghosts. Uh, do the souls of unbelievers or believers ever walk around the earth, or are they demons or complete fiction? Go for it. You've had time to prepare yeah. on this one. Yes, as a ghost expert, I... Uh, yeah, so I, I think that the biblical, what, what you see in the Bible is this idea that when you die, if you're a Christian, you go and you wait with Christ. The Bible will call that Abraham's bosom. It will call, Jesus will say paradise, right? So today you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, if you're not a Christian, you go and wait somewhere away from Jesus, okay? Uh, that's called in the New Testament Hades. Hades is not the same thing as hell. Uh, in the Old Testament, you have the idea of Sheol, uh, which is not the grave. It's actually just the place where people go when they die. It's this shadowy netherworld, and in Sheol, there's a good place of Sheol for the righteous and a bad place of Sheol for the wicked. And then there is resurrection. Whether you're a Christian or an unchristian, you will be bodily resurrected. And so a better way to say it is uh, heaven is a waiting room for new and improved heaven, i.e. new heavens and new earth. And hell is a waiting room for new and improved hell, i.e. the lake of fire. Now, having said all that, the idea biblically is that when you die, you go to one of those two places. I think when you hear of haunted houses uh, or something like that, I think most of that stuff is just hype, weird stuff. Someone ate a bad piece of chicken and then went to bed and had a weird dream. Uh, some of that stuff could be demonic, uh, I think, but I don't think you have the idea of uh, ghosts and things like that. Now, the one exception people will try to point to is they'll talk about the story of the witch of Endor in the Old Testament, where you have uh, Saul trying to conjure back up Samuel and all these kind of things. I don't think that's the point of that text. That, that text is not uh, meant for you to base your entire ghostology uh, on. That text is meant to talk about Saul's sin. We plan on eventually dealing with that text. Jeff and I are putting together a list of what we call tough text, and eventually we'd love to have uh, some sort of sermon series where we can just walk through all the weird text in the Bible. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's my view. If you have other things to add, though, please. Uh, no. I don't, know. I don't know what to do with, uh, with ghost sort of experiences. I, I think the demonic uh, is a good um, uh, uh, sort of way to look at it. Uh, there's also just the possibility of other uh, natural phenomenon and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, think of Marfa lights and that kind of stuff, probably swamp gases and that kind of stuff. So I think the, the vast majority of quote-unquote ghost experiences are, have nothing to do with the spiritual, and uh, they're just physical sort of things. But uh, Someone asked this. This is a little premature for uh, next week, but I think it's helpful to, to mention now. Uh, someone asked if lost people will be bodily resurrected as well. You want to talk about that? Yeah, that's good. So uh, this is something that I, I did not uh, ever hear growing up. Uh, I wasn't saved till after college, but I went to church at least when I was a kid, and uh, this was something that was completely new to me whenever I started studying theology in my early 20s for the first time, and uh, that is that the Bible teaches a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. 
And so Matthew talks about that in 24, 25, something like that. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about it next week. Uh, but there is a resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. And the kind of the idea is that death will not win. Death will not win over anybody, even over unbelievers. Death itself will be judged. If you look at the, the Revelation quote that I put in, in regards to unbelievers, that death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. Death itself is, uh, is judged. And so uh, God will raise up the, uh, the, the condemned uh, in order for them to be condemned in their bodies. And, uh, and so, yes, there is a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. All right. Yeah, and I think what you're seeing in all this is just <clears throat> there's an emphasis in the Bible on physicality. We have a tendency to think that what's physical is bad. That comes more out of Greek philosophy. What's physical is good. When God made everything, he said that it's good. And then at the end of creation, he said it's very good. And so your body is good. And the things God has made is good. It's sin that's bad. What sin does is it takes creation and twists it. But creation in and of itself is good. And so regardless of whether you're a Christian or not Christian, your final existence will be bodily. Don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear God who can cast both soul and body uh, into hell. Uh, and so, uh, so yes, there, there's more of a physicality to our faith than I think that we have a tendency to realize. Okay, one more for time's sake. Uh, and because we didn't get a ton of questions that were not about ghosts, here's this next one. What does Jesus mean when he says, I go to prepare a place for you? Is that heaven, many mansions, these kind of things? Thoughts on, uh, on how we should interpret those verses? You go first. Though. Okay. Uh, I think when Jesus is talking about, I go to prepare a place for you or build up your treasure in heaven or all these kind of things, I think that it's metaphorical to talk about your eternal inheritance. I don't think it's meant to say, right now, there is a mansion in heaven that I'll go to for a short time until the resurrection, and then I'll need a new mansion down here. I think that gets too specific. The whole point is to say that if you follow Christ, though you lose your current things, you lose your current mansion, your family leaves you, you're imprisoned for your faith, whatever it might be, you inherit the whole world right? You, uh, you gain all these things that uh, God has adopted you, and therefore you get to have all these great things. So I think that's the point. The whole point is to say that Jesus is going ahead of us. He's the forerunner to our faith, as uh, the New Testament will call him. And so I don't think it's meant to specifically say that. I think whatever the eternal state is, it is going to be great. It is going to be much better than it is now. It is going to be uh, everything that the world should have been and more uh, before the fall. But uh, I think that anytime you go into too much precision, things get weird, because that's not how metaphors work, right? So if, if, if I'm teaching on the uh, parable of the prodigal son, and you're like, what's his name? How old is he? That's too specific, right? And so uh, that, it, that's not the point. That's, it's it's, it's a, an illustration. So I think it's the same way there. The whole point Jesus is saying is, there will be reward for you, so be future-minded. Be heaven-minded. I am going before you. I will lead the way. I will die. I will resurrect. I will do all the stuff. And so just know that there's reward waiting. I think that's the only point of that, but I don't know if you have extra, extra no, thoughts. I, I would just say you, you don't stretch the analogy or the metaphor beyond the author's intent. And so uh, in that, he is trying to communicate to a first century Jewish audience in regards to uh, eternal hope. And, uh, and so especially for a Jewish audience, the idea of eternal hope is, is something that is not all that clear. You think about in the Old Testament, uh, the, there is much more of an emphasis upon this present life. And so God's promises, curses, and blessings, and those kind of things relate to the promised land and this particular uh, life that they are uh, living. And, uh, and so uh, as Jesus is forming uh, the, uh, the impressionable sort of minds of his followers, He's doing it progressively. He's doing it slowly. He's slowly teaching them. And so we see Jesus say certain things that then Paul is going to build upon and Peter's going to build upon and, and, uh, and so forth. And so his intention there is not to give some sort of literal thing because he's a carpenter. He's going to go and actually build a house and we're all going to live in the same house in a certain size or whatever it might be. And, uh, and so in certain instances, you're going to have the idea we're all living in the same house. And then in other instances, you're going to have the image of we each have mansions or whatever it might be. And, and there's just different images for different situations, but all of them are expressing the same idea, which is that there is this eternal hope. And your hope is not that when this life ends, it's over. And you don't simply remain in Sheol or remain in uh, the grave or remain in death or whatever, and that's it. There's not this cessation. There is this eternal hope, and that's what he is co uh, communicating with all of these different illustrations. They don't contradict each other. They kind of complement uh, each other. So That's it? Yeah. I'll pray. 
Father, thank you for uh, your word, and uh, I thank you for the hope of the uh, intermediate state, and, uh, and ultimately for the hope of resurrection. Lord, that is our desire, not that we would simply be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal would be swallowed up by life, so that our current bodies, which groan as we experience the, uh, the effects of living in a fallen world, would, uh, would be renewed, would be resurrected, that there would be no more tears, that there would be no more sorrow, that there would be no more cancer, that there would be uh, no more flu, that there would be no more measles, that there would be none of these sorts of things, Lord. And so uh, I pray, Lord, that you would give us hope that where our hearts were unable to resonate uh, with, uh, with the apostle as he says that his desire is to depart and be with Christ, or that we would rather be away from the body and at home, where that seems um, inconsistent to us, where that seems absurd or silly to us, Lord, where we struggle with that, Lord, would you help us, Lord, that uh, you would help us not to love this life less, but you would help us to love that other life more. And, uh, and so, uh, I just pray that you would bless us, that you would help us, that you would encourage us, you would edify us as we go forth from here that you'd prepare our hearts to uh, receive your word and, uh, and uh, the good um, uh, grace that we have in taking communion together and worshiping and encouraging and all those things. And so we love you. We want to love you more. Would you help us? Because you're good and you do good. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen.